Greetings, everyone. I'm Rena Sackett, Director of Member Relations and the ASHP Staff Liaison to the Section of Inpatient Care Practitioners here at ASHP. Thanks for joining. I'm excited to share with you that today's episode is a curated feature focusing on medication safety as a part of the exceptional programming from the 2022 ASHP Major Clinical Meeting. Please enjoy the voices of your colleagues as they share the latest clinical information, leadership advice, and medication safety best practices. So in the beginning of uh, this year, ISMP started off our um, newsletter with some of the top medication safety issues from the previous year. And I have them here on this slide on the left-hand side. That's what they were in the beginning of the year, and that was reflected reflecting what had happened in the prior year. And we do have something new for 2023. And we've combined our top list with ECRI's list. So ECRI is ISMP's parent company, um, and they have a top 10 patient safety concerns list. And in that list will be medication safety items. Now that list, in order to create it, the multidisciplinary personnel of ECRI and ISMP proposed topics, and then they looked out to the literature for support. They also looked into what was being captured through consulting work, uh, through reports, trends in reports, whether it be patient safety reports or medication safety reports. We looked at data from the ISMP, a National Medication Errors Reporting Program. We also looked at information from root cause analyses, research requests, and accident investigations. And that list will be published first quarter of next year. So I'm not going to share any of that with you. It's still in the works, but look for that to come. Um, and in that assessment of those items, we looked at the severity of harm that could result from the issue. We also looked at the frequency, the likelihood of it occurring, and also the, the breadth, how many patients it could potentially affect. One of the items that we covered early in 2022 were results of our disrespectful behaviors in healthcare survey. Um, in fact, this survey was a survey that was repeated. Um, we had at ISMP done two prior surveys on disrespectful behavior. One was in 2003 and one was in 2021, I'm sorry, 2013 and then 2021. And the results of our survey revealed that widespread disrespectful behaviors involving multiple offenders at all levels and among all disciplines genders, and ranks. And this is unfortunate um, because compared to 20, 2003 and 2013's surveys, little or no improvement had been made. And in some areas, um, the results show that things had actually gotten worse. For years, um, disrespectful behavior has really flourished, unfortunately, in healthcare. Um, and it's really been silently endured by all of us. And you might even hear practitioners or yourself saying when approached that that's just the way that person is, that's just the way they are. And sometimes some of these disrespectful behaviors can even come from patients that we're treating. Um, when I say disrespectful behaviors, this really encompasses a lot of different behaviors in the workplace. Um, it could just be a slow, subtle, disruptive behavior. Or it could be something very overt, which um, a lot of people can identify with. 
Uh, most of the practitioners who completed the survey, and I'll tell you, we had over a thousand practitioners who took the survey and sent in their feelings and thoughts. Uh, most weren't satisfied with their organizational efforts to address disruptive behaviors. And you know, the sad thing is the adverse effects of disrespectful behaviors are really widespread. Um, it could really jeopardize an individual's psychological safety, their emotional health, their overall well-being. And these adverse events place individuals at a greater risk for making human errors and for not following procedures. So we, we see this as a great medication safety concern. ISMP's response to the survey included some recommendations on how you can improve these behavioral cultures in your organization. Um, first is really to set the stage, um, create that foundation for a healthy workforce or workplace. Um, you really need to create that foundation by changing, trying to change your organizational culture. You want staff to feel really safe about speaking up, to have that psychological safety. And even though this can start at the grassroots, leaders also need to be able to communicate and set the tone with their attitude and show all practitioners their importance to the team. One of the recommendations is to create a steering committee and have that steering committee be comprised of people from all different ranks and across all different disciplines. And there's a lot of advantages to getting the perspective of all of those practitioners. In the beginning, you really have to work to prohibit any retaliation against people who are going to report disruptive behaviors or disrespectful behaviors. And another way to enforce that is to open the dialogue with an anonymous survey. Practitioners may not feel comfortable right away talking about these things, so the anonymous survey is really a nice approach. And you can see from our anonymous survey, people were very willing to share specific issues. And then finally, establish a standard communication strategy and establish an escalation policy to manage conflicts about the safety of orders, because of course we're concerned about medication safety. And that ties in to another issue that we covered this year, and that was resolving conflicts about the safety of an order. Now you might be familiar with this case. Um, there was a physician who was found not guilty of hastening the deaths of terminally ill patients by prescribing very large doses of opioids. But interesting, 20 pharmacists and nurses were fired for accepting and executing those orders. Um, in our survey, nearly half, 47% of the respondents said that they have held, felt pressured to accept an order to dispense a product or administer a drug despite concerns about the safety of that order. Now, um, looking at the information that we were able to gather from coverage of the trial, it seemed clear that some practitioners were uncomfortable with the orders that this prescriber had been writing. But the prescribing behavior continued for four years. So you might question why that might have happened. Um, and there could be a number of reasons. There could have been intimidation by the prescriber's exceptional reputation. 
um, some talk about it being able to be easily convinced that the dose was safe, that practitioners were easily convinced. And also the potential that there was just a lack of clear guidance to follow when, a, when somebody disagrees um, with a concern, when somebody has a concern that a prescriber disagrees with. So there are a couple recommendations that ISMP put forth. Um, first, to develop an effective process for handling medication therapy conflicts. And this should really include an escalation process, but beyond that usual, usual hierarchical strategy because people need to know who to call and somebody in that hierarchical structure may be the person that they have the conflict with. So it's important that we build ways around that so that we can resolve the issue. Um, one way you could do that is to create a specialized escalation team that could be called to respond to conflicts about the safety of an order. Um, you really should, as an overall strategy, promote the need to speak up and be persistent with patient safety concerns. And also to start people off on the right foot to include conflict resolution as part of orientation for your employees and, and practice using it. Um, in situations and simulations. Conflict resolution really can be looked at in three different steps. Um, the first is gathering information. So if there is an order for which there is question, gathering um, information about the factual information about the patient, about the medication, about the dosing, um, then questioning the order, and sometimes, and you may have even experienced this, sometimes this is you know, a combination effort. A nurse may call pharmacy because they have a question, or a pharmacy may call nursing, and it is a collaborative um, discussion. And then in that questioning of the order, you know, try and present that to the practitioner or the provider in an SBAR format, giving them the situation, the background, your assessment, and your recommendation. And you know, if applicable, ask them for documentation. It's okay to do that. If, as a practitioner, you don't feel comfortable with the resolution, you should feel empowered to take your concern higher up. Um, unfortunately, a third, a little bit more than a third, 37% of the people who responded to the disrespectful behavior survey said that they did not know whether their organizations had a process for handling clinical disagreements that allowed them to bypass the typical chain of command. And 58% of the individuals said that they knew for sure that their organization did not allow them to bypass the typical chain of command if necessary. So these are concerning to us from a medication safety standpoint. So this is something that would be really helpful if this could be addressed more proactively before a situation occurs in organizations. So taking a different turn, um, another interesting event that we uh, shared in our newsletter was uh, cardiovascular events that were associated with stopping and restarting clozapine. So the problem here was a patient had not taken their clozapine, 500 milligrams daily for two weeks, uh, due to a prescribing delay. There were actually some changes in REMS, and the provider couldn't renew the, pre the prescription, so there was a delay. 
The patient was hospitalized and then restarted on their clozapine at 400 milligrams daily. Um, after just one dose, the patient was found pulseless. Um, severe cardiovascular events, I think probably several of you know this already, can occur during the initiation, uh, the initial titration period. It is a boxed warning for clozapine. Um, similar risks exist when the drug is stopped and then restarted after two days or more. So we wanted to draw attention to this um, with, so that practitioners understood the risks related to restopping and restarting clozapine. The recommendations that ISMP put forth was that when restarting clozapine after a break in therapy, and this follows with the clinical information around the medication, um, if it has been two days or longer, the dose should begin at 12 and a half milligrams once or twice daily. The key point here is that we need to educate our providers about the potential for adverse cardiovascular events. Some of them may not be aware of that, especially during that initial dose titration and retitration of therapy. Um, confirm that the patient's dose and date of their last administration prior to prescribing, and then consider dose titration parameters like a standard parameters for new starts and restarts. Another item that ISMP addressed this year were um, nonspecific PRN frequencies for medication administration. So we had had a lot of discussion about this in the past, uh, and it was brought to our attention that there were errors still occurring where um, practitioners would order medications such as BID or TID PRN. And when talking to nurses who actually administer medications in a hospital setting, people interpret these differently. You know, does that mean at 12 o'clock midnight, um, you, at 12.01 a.m., you can restart even if you just administered a dose at 12 midnight? Um, does that mean three doses separated, if it's TID, three doses separated throughout, evenly throughout the day? Does it mean I could give three doses as frequently as necessary as long as I don't exceed three in a 24-hour period? Is it a calendar day? Is it a rolling 24-hour period? And these um, in differences in interpretation can occur with patients as well in the outpatient setting. Uh, so there was a lot of variability that we saw in interpretation, which we, it could cause harm, and we know it has resulted in patient harm when patients have been dosed too close together with medications that are prescribed in such a manner. So ISMP made recommendations that prescribers should define the minimum time between PRN doses. So for example, something such as every eight hours PRN, um, along with an indication for when that should be used. And that order entry system shouldn't allow these nonspecific PRN frequencies as part of an order. And of course, there could be other interpretations of these, but the point that we were trying to make here is that we wanted to really create some standard approach so that each practitioner wasn't interpreting these as we were seeing in a different manner. Another thing that came up this year, and actually we still, even since I've put these slides together, we still have received more concerns and reports about concerns with the change in potassium chloride for injection concentrate into XL plastic bags. Due to manufacturing issues, B. Braun began production of these bags and distribution. 
It's two milliequivalents per mil in a 250 mil XL plastic bag instead of a glass container, which is what most people were very familiar with. Um, the revised packaging is very similar to premixed intravenous medication bags. If you haven't seen them, I'm going to show you a picture in a minute. And several practitioners reported these concerns to ISMP. A mix-up could prove fatal um, if the product's accidentally administered undiluted. And, and here's what the, um, the bag looks like. You see the, the bottle is what we were used to. Um, they came out with it in the 250 ml bag. Uh, what they did make some changes after discussion with ISMP. You could see the port at the bottom. The color, there was a color change in the port. Uh, we also pushed out a nan alert to draw attention to this issue. And uh, this came up um, probably mid-year for us. And we still, since um, the deadline for these slides, which was September, we are still receiving reports of concerns related to these bags. We make recommendations to review the NAN alert, take steps to prevent potential fatal errors. We do have recommendations in that NAN alert. Limited the purchasing of this product to the pharmacy. In the pharmacy, segregate and store the product uh, from similar looking infusion bags. Might be a little bit difficult, but really important here. And also apply auxiliary labels on the shipping case and both sides of the overwraps of the bags just to really draw attention to the fact that these are concentrated potassium chloride. And if available, use barcoding prior to use. Another item that we covered were um, issues related to pen injectors and the need for pen needles. So there is a difference between an auto injector and a pen injector. Auto injectors are developed to really help patients overcome hesitation with injecting themselves. And they have an attached needle. Um, they provide a single medication dose of one, for one time use by the patient prior to disposal. Unlike auto injectors, pen injectors require patients to actually attach a pen needle. And some of them come with a supply of disposable needles, although others don't have um, needles. So the problem here is that when pen injectors, with pen injectors, omitted doses have been reported when the needles haven't been prescribed or they haven't been dispensed along with the pen injectors. And some events were attributed to dispensing the wrong pen needles and unfamiliarity by the person dispensing the product with the injector. So ISMP have made recommendations to you know, check your state laws to determine if a prescription is needed for these needles to create an order set that would include automatically the pen needles, even for um, if you're in an inpatient setting for um, prescription writing for discharge. And remind patients to pick up both when they need to, the pen injector and the needles from the pharmacy and educate them on how to use the device. Um, we did have a similar years ago NAN alert related to issues with pen needles with insulin pens. And that's what you see on the left-hand side of the slide. On the right-hand side of the slide, um, we have just an example of an FDA recommends that manufacturers of pen injectors include the statement, needles not included. I have that in the red box there. Um, on the outside of the carton to again remind practitioners and patients that needles need to be dispensed. Another recurring event that we've repeatedly see at ISMP is, are patients who actually ingest 
desiccant tablets or desiccants, the containers. Um, and we have seen a lot of that occur this year related to this one particular product. Um, and this is um, Everolimus, and it's the blister packaging. I think probably many of you are familiar with it. Um, in, the most, in the case most recent to prior to putting the slides together, we had a patient who had brought their unit dose package back to the pharmacy and asked why some tablet sizes were different. And that's when they recognized that the patient had been taking the desiccants as well. Uh, we do regularly meet with FDA around some of the safety issues that get reported to us, and this is something that we did bring up with FDA as well. And they're aware of the issues with patients confusing these desiccants. Um, it is, seems to be more reported with this particular product and likely because of the product design that confuses patients. So our recommendations here are to alert practitioners who may not open the carton or even know what that blister looks like. Um, there's probably a lot of practitioners who don't recognize what that looks like on the inside. Um, and when educating patients upon discharge or when dispensing prescriptions, if you're in an outpatient setting, to let, let them know that those cards contain desiccants and actually show them that during that counseling. Um, for other drugs, if, uh, if you can, remove the desiccant cylinders from the medication bottles. We've had those reports as well. So I try and bring some things to this session that are not covered in ISMP's newsletters, but things that we might have worked on so that you have an awareness. And, and this was a, a situation, a case, that came up through our affiliate, ISMP Canada. And they had a call out for safer labeling of active pharmaceutical ingredients. And a lot of this mirrors some of, and we can benefit from this in the US as well, mirrors some of the concerns that we have around the risks. So I'm gonna just tell you a case of a, a child, it was a young child, who for 18 months had been receiving three grams of tryptophan. It was a, a liquid formulation, it was 20 milliliters. They were receiving it by mouth at bedtime to treat a complex sleep disorder. And a refill of the tryptophan prescription was ordered. It was picked up by the from the compounding pharmacy, um, same pharmacy that had been preparing the suspension in the past. That night, the child was given their usual dose of the medication. And the next morning, the child was found deceased in their bed. A post-mortem toxicology test had identified lethal levels of baclofen. Now, baclofen hadn't been prescribed for the child. Uh, testing of the suspension refill revealed that um, tryptophan wasn't in there um, and that baclofen was in there. And the concentration was the same as what would have been the concentration for tryptophan. And if you calculate the dose for this child, they received 20 times the maximum dose of baclofen from the suspension. Now, in the investigation that ISMP Canada did, they, they couldn't determine how the, the selection error was missed during the compounding process or the verification process. They did share some guesses that they had. Um, they thought perhaps that there might have been a delay in conducting that final check of the completed product. Um, they thought that perhaps before being checked, the 
correct ingredient might have been retrieved. Maybe it didn't stay with the product during the compounding process. Um, but subsequently, there were a lot of risks they identified in this non-sterile compounding workflow that they felt um, should be addressed and could be addressed. So some of the recommendations that came out of this, and again, I think a lot of these would be helpful for us to consider as well, because um, we have the same risks. Before preparing a compounded product, each ingredient should be um, each ingredient and its measured amount should be verified. They called for a unique identification number on each API. Um, a lot of these APIs don't have barcodes on them, and this was one of the pieces that they felt would have been uh, a key to identifying that the wrong product had been taken off of the shelf in the compounding process, and that barcode scanning should be incorporated into that process. Uh, labeling and packaging, they call for of compounding chemicals should be designed to minimize risk of errors. Um, sometimes some of these packages are, are you know, they don't, they don't look the same. They, they can all look alike. They are very limited in terms of information. And that um, organizations who are doing this compounding have policies, procedures, or checklists available for staff to follow. So a lot of learnings here uh, from this case. I did give the, um, the link to that, that article if you want to read all of it. Another error that continually gets reported to ISMP are oral medications being given intravenously. I mean, thankfully, it's not a huge volume of events, but they do continually to come into ISMP. And there are, um, it's, it's, we've long cautioned against practitioners, we've long cautioned practitioners about this risk. Uh, it can stem from a number of things. Um, it could be a lack of knowledge related to the differences between syringes that should be used for oral administration versus syringes that should be used for parenteral administration. Um, it could be due to just lack of availability of the right syringe for use. There's cases where just poor practices are being taught. And some of these mix-ups, the reason why this is so concerning, have resulted in death. So we are really fortunate and grateful that we have a lot of great practitioners out there who report to our error reporting program so that we can take action on a lot of, of these reports. And we received a report this year from an organization that actually had two such cases. Um, the first case was a student nurse who was distracted. Um, they were preparing a Tylenol liquid from a unit dose cup when they went to administer it to the patient, they got distracted and they attached it to the IV line. Really fortunate that this, pre, this student nurse's precepting nurse was with them at the time and they were able to stop that um, and they ended up changing the infusion line as well and there was no harm to the patient, thank God. Um, there was a second case at the same organization where a nurse was preparing oxycodone tablets for J-tube administration and the nurse had crushed the tablet and then used a normal saline flush to dissolve and draw up the medication. And the medication was inadvertently administered through the patient's peripherally inserted central catheter. Thankfully, again, this patient had no harm. Um, the person who submitted these events did a really great job in investigating these and really getting at the root causes. Um, and they identified several areas uh, for improvement. 
Um, across the network, in talking to practitioners, they came to find out that it was very common practice to administer medications in this manner, um, to not to use parenteral syringes for oral administration. They also found just an insufficient or incomplete rollout of MFIT across their system. They saw that um, there was inconsistent supplies, so some areas might have had the correct syringes while others did not. And of course, that knowledge gap of really what the benefit of having an enteral syringe is and why nurses should use them when administering oral liquids. Um, they did also realize that in many cases, nurses were being taught um, bad practices and absorbing bad practices through use of different social media outlets. So our recommendations for this are to ensure that ed practitioners are educated on the importance of the use of these syringes and also on the risks associating, associated with using parenteral syringes for oral administration. Um, having a variety of those oral or enteral syringes available in care areas is helpful too. Um, you want, if they're going for the supply, you want to make sure it's there. And also, you have to continually monitor the practice um, and, and coach as people drift away or if people are receiving bad information from others. How many people have here have heard of the rights, the five rights? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sometimes there's six, sometimes there's 10. Um, <laughs> ISMP first wrote about the rights in 1999, and we wrote about them again in 2007. These rights have been cited as root causes or performance deficits when investigating medication errors. These are not the end-all be-all for safety. Um, they're really just broadly stated goals or desired outcomes of safe medication practices. Although I'm sure if you're out there and you've read medication events, I'm sure you've read that the nurse didn't follow the five rights as the reason for the error. Simply holding staff accountable to the rights is not gonna ensure safety. Um, the the rights are not, they're a behavioral, not a behavioral model, and they're not gonna help people achieve medication safety. All you can really do is have, ensure or help practitioners to follow rules that you've set up to ensure that the rights are met. So at ISMP, we, we see this over-reliance on the five rights as really taking away from our ability to improve medication safety efforts. So ISMP this year has really worked on coming up with a statement around the five rights, and I think you'll, you will, I don't think I know you'll see that um, in the upcoming year, that we're going to really bring up this issue again. Um, we try, we wanna try and get a little bit wider audience on this to really help practitioners move away from looking at the five rights as a strategy to prevent medication errors or a root cause of why medication errors occur. 
Well, this is something new. I have a bunch of new things now that I'm going to share with you. Um, and I wasn't sure where we would be with this at the time of um, when I put this together. So I just have one slide on it. And I, I can't share what they are with you because we haven't finalized them just yet. But we are going to come out with new ISMP targeted medication safety best practices for community pharmacy. So these will be targeted to the outpatient setting. I'm sure you're all familiar with our best practices for the hospital setting. Uh, we, when we initiated them in 2014, we always thought that we would have some parallel path for other settings as well. Well, um, this year we started that process. So um, I expect early next year you'll see what those are, so keep your eyes out for them. Another thing that we changed this year, and this might be minor, but I know a lot of you have used these, uh, referenced this in your talks that you do on medication safety, but we revised our hierarchy of error reduction strategies. It looks a little bit different. It's still the same concept. Um, the lower strategies are lower leverage strategies on the bottom, higher level strategies on the top, looking at a system reliability on the top and more human reliability on the bottom. But it just looks a little different. Um, I wanted to share that with you. We also launched two new ISMP guidelines this year. The first one came out in first quarter or second quarter, um, the ISMP guidelines for safe medication use. Oh, I'm sorry, I've got them backwards. Um, the first one's on the right-hand side of the slide. Um, guidelines for sterile compounding and the safe use of sterile compounding technology. That came out in May. And that one focuses on three technologies, um, automated compounders, IV workflow software systems, and IV robotics. It also gives recommendations on what to do if you're not currently using technology in your sterile compounding processes. The guideline on the left is the most current one, uh, the most newest one uh, that came out, I think maybe third quarter of this year, guidelines for safe medication use in the perioperative and procedural settings. That guideline document was a result of our self-assessment in the perioperative setting and also a summit that followed that self-assessment looking at the results. Um, and this calls for um, best practices and challenges organizations really to raise the bar in safety in this setting. Another thing that we had new this year, if you haven't looked at this, I know we did cover it in a newsletter. Um, we have a new website for our consumer medication safety um, centers. This is a website that's completely separate from ISMP's website. There is information there that is specific to patients. We have what some of you might be familiar with, the high alert medication safety sheets. We have a number of those. Um, they were developed originally from, uh, based off of an AHRQ grant, and we've since expanded them as new high alert medications have come out. Um, we also have an insulin safety center on the website. And then there's different components of the site that um, describe safety with medications by location of where patients are, um, by population. Some really nice things about how to read a prescription label, um, how, pet safety, medications and pets. We actually get error reports about pets and medications and pets who have ingested medications and pets who have had adverse events to medications. There actually isn't really a reporting program for that. People report to us. 
Um, and we also have FDA consumer alerts there. So if you're doing patient education, if that's part of, of your work, you might want to take a look. You can use some of the materials there in your educational efforts. So um, before I conclude my portion, I do want to, again, thank anybody who's reported to us. We appreciate that. You really help us to ensure our mission. Um, we have been able to make a lot of changes based on the information that we get from all of you. Um, it is continuously learning for us. We look at all of the error reports that come in. They're shared with all practitioners at ISMP. Um, we have clinical expert advisors that we may call upon if we need help with certain situations, with events that come through. This is how you report to us. You could see if you, it says contact, but there is a, a key to report errors to us and you can report as a consumer or as a healthcare practitioner. Thanks so much for listening in today. Be sure to follow us at ASHP Official wherever you listen to podcasts and check back soon to hear more featurettes from the 2022 ASHP Mid-Year Clinical Meeting.